0: Um, The barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church.
1: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? um, You're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
0: Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico, And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, this week, we're taking a little bit of a side, a side
1: trip. What's it called? A side trek? uh, A side trip, a side trek. I think you're, you're on the right track. (laughs) We're, we're taking a a
0: road stop, a pit stop, if you will. God, (laughs) Maybe that's what I was trying to get to. Uh, It's hard to say. Um, We're taking a little bit of a detour. A left turn, if you will. (laughs) Oh my God. We did it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, to talk a little bit more about a wild French philosopher that we did bring up last week, kind of in a happenstance kind of way. Um, so last week, in case you didn't listen, which is, it's okay, don't beat yourself up about it. Uh, we did this cool roundup of articles about the Lula election in Brazil, and we learned some interesting things, and I liked it a lot. It was a good learning experience for me. Um, But we did do a very weird digression into an interview that uh, Felix Guattari did, who was a French philosopher, uh, with Lula, um, before Lula's political career ever really started. So it was just kind of like this weird trip uh, that that Guattari, this French guy, took to Brazil, and he talked to this guy who's a big union activist there, Lula, at the time. A great thing. If you're interested, go back and listen to our podcast about it. And if you're not interested, then... (laughs) There's more of the same. Turn it off now. (laughs) Um, That whole thing got our wheels really turning about another pretty niche but interesting piece of French philosophy by Felix Wattari and Antonio Negri. Um, It's a book that's called Communists Like Us, New Lines of Alliance, New Spaces of Liberty. It's a cool book. I like the title of the book, Communists Like Us, because it's like, you know, like us. Um, It sounds like a great sitcom. Yeah, it does sound like a great sitcom. It's uh, it's George and Jerry. They're in the apartment and they are communists. Like them.
1: it's a, it's a full house. Uh, Uncle Joey, Uncle Jesse. They're there. They're they're both trade union activists trying to make some waves, sell some newspapers. Uh, that's a TV show I'd watch for sure. Um, <laughs> so like
0: I said, Guattari he co-wrote this book with um an important uh Italian communist figure named Antonio Negri. Um, Antonio Negri is a cool guy. Uh, you might know him as the guy that wrote the book Empire, um, but there's so much more to this this great <laughs> Italian grandpa. Um, and we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit. Um, the book itself, though, has some shortcomings, for sure. Um, like, it's extremely period-specific. It is uh, also riddled with, like, French philosophy jargon among other things. But I think there's also like a really interesting impulse in it that, uh, you know, promotes the idea of a multi-centered approach to liberation movements and to organizing rather than relying on like one ideological lens to like push everything through. Um, I think that's cool. So I think our podcast has like a particular interest in this perspective because the church has oftentimes been one of those like social organs that resists the ideological center of like a communist party or a socialist organization. So, so if we want like a big liberative movement that's inclusive, then we should see what it is that Guatari and Negri have to offer. Because I think that's kind of what they're after. And that's what's really exciting to me about the whole thing. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to talk through uh, Negri and Guattari's communists like us and uh, provide some context, probably a lot of criticism. And then also figure out like what's telling us about uh, people who are trying to organize faith communities and that kind of thing.
1: Um, Extremely niche content that I assure you, you won't get anywhere else. (laughs) This is it. This is the whole, this is how we've built our entire podcast, and we're not going to stop now. That's for sure. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Well, as Matt was saying, Negri, Gotari, interesting people, interesting philosophers, lots to know about him. Um, man, fun fact, actually, uh, about my own autobiography, Empire is the first book I ever read in a philosophy class that wasn't like an intro to philosophy class. And wow, what a way to learn (laughs) about philosophy. That's crazy, man. It is crazy. Yeah, we, I had a wild philosophy professor, Matt Bonzo was his name, and he's great. I loved him. He uh, he he teaches this intro class, and then if you keep doing philosophy, you just get like thrown into the deep end of whatever he's reading at the time. And uh, in our political philosophy class, he happened to be reading Empire and Man. Uh, Empire is a really bizarre kind of book, and it was really influential in the early mid2000s. Um, some people kind of look at it as like the theoretical expression of Occupy in some ways, kind of predating Occupy. And it was definitely influential on the Occupy movement. And it was, yeah, quite a trip. All that to say, Negri, uh, I think I've outgrown him, but he does have a special place in my heart for that reason. Guattari, I figured out a lot later, but uh, still figuring him out. So you'll have to help me there, <laughs> Matt, I think, as we as we go here. Yeah, for sure. Man, what a cool thing.
0: Uh, that's a great, a great teaching uh, model though to just like here's what I'm reading and you can read it with me. Um, <laughs> un- un- unironically, no, not being facetious at all. That's a great idea. I think that um, it's a great strategy.
1: It works. I-, I ended up doing a whole PhD, but uh, <laughs> you know, here's the other weird thing that maybe I should have added too is we were reading it in the context of being at an evangelical school uh, a year after Barack Obama was elected. Okay. So as you can okay. imagine, it's a pretty weird environment yeah, <laughs> to be reading hard and angry.
0: A lot of context missing, not just philosophically, but also lots of <laughs> politics there. That's very funny. Um okay. So um let's see, Negri and Guattari are both like um so so they kind of come out of this like mo- this movement and this moment in the um the early 70s and like into the eighties. Um that I think like if you were to categorize their sort of like niche. It, it's like postmodern philosophy is kind of what they're doing, right? And, it, you know, they would maybe resist that term or contextualize it. But, like, as an epoch, I think that maybe kind of fits in to, like, what they're doing. Um, Guattari, he is French and is, like, the co-author of a lot of books with uh, Gilles Deleuze, who is definitely one of those, like, postmodern philosophy guys. And uh, Negri, uh, he had to fl- flee Italy. <laughs> I'll, we'll talk about that maybe in a few minutes. He had to flee <laughs> Italy and he went to France and taught alongside Deleuze and Derrida and all these kinds of guys. So, I mean, if they're not like postmodern explicitly, they're definitely like in that sort of wheelhouse. Um, so, Dean, before we go any further, can, can you give us the, like the, the <laughs> postmodern philosophy contextualization that people might need to know, like to make sense of some of this?
1: Yeah. All right. Sure. Um, postmodernism is a complicated thing in philosophy in particular. It names a sort of, um, unique, weird family of discourses or family of thinkers that are kind of post sixties thinkers in the seventies and eighties, especially it's a lot of people who started getting really interested in, uh, texts, and how we read texts, also interested in kind of upsetting some of the categories that they would describe as modern. So like, the way that modern Europeans, for example, thought about the self as this like rational man wandering around the world making rational choices, whether that's in the economy, or even in the way that we understand the sciences and so on. Postmodernists were saying that's actually not really how anybody is in the world, right? We're not really these rational actors wandering around. And there are a lot more people uh, in the world than just a handful of um, white European men. And maybe they have some different perspectives, different ways of understanding themselves, uh, understanding texts and things like that. So I think in broad strips, you could say postmodernism, right? As you could probably guess by that label, is something that is really a, a reaction to modernism, but also a, an attempt to to do something different, to do something new. And so from that, there's all kinds of different directions that people go in. Uh, Like Matt mentioned, Derrida, he is a guy who's super into reading, super into books, also into like law and legal theory, things like that. Um, You get folks like Foucault, who's really into uh, discipline or ideas of social control and and that sort of thing, right? So lots of different paths that you can take. Uh, But Negri and Guattari also, in particular, take a really interesting political path. And maybe one thing to kind of set the stage here, too, is... Um, Communism in the Marxist variety is not exactly modernist, but also not not modernist. (laughs) Like um, Marxism, it belongs to this kind of tradition of the enlightenment of uh, modernity in some ways of trying to kind of catch up with, uh, you know, the sciences and that sort of thing in a political and economic sense. And so the communist parties that were especially significant in France and Italy we're coming out of that tradition too. And so postmodern approaches to anti-capitalism also take up a sort of critical relationship to that Marxist tradition, but it's not to say that they stop being Marxists, it's just that they uh take Marx in some other direction. And that's certainly true of, of Negri specifically. Cool.
0: That's great. I wouldn't add a single thing to that. You've said it all. Well. <laughs> yeah, there you go, man. <laughs> um Okay, so there's that context that's important. The other the other context I think is important is maybe like the historical situation that they're writing out of, Um, because some of it, I mean, you know, whenever you're describing a liberation movement, I mean, you're you're always talking from a particular place in history. Right. And there's definitely a lot of that happening in this book in particular. So um, let's see. There are these like series of very interesting and also very complicated popular uprisings in continental Europe. (laughs) I mean, mostly between France and Italy. Um, At least that's like the, the way that the narrative is usually told starting in 1968. There's this thing that happens called May, June, 1968, where there's all these kinds of uh, student protests in in uh, Paris. And there's like trade unionists who are striking all kinds of stuff. Um, Sorry, I'm going to do a, a bad historical gloss to kind of get to the point quicker than, than maybe normal. Um, anyway, so that's ha- that's happening there. And then, um, you know, a few years later in in Italy, things like are starting to kick off as well. Um, Italy is, I think, maybe an important backdrop for some of this, because this is really what they're the context they're writing about in this book. Um, so um Italy if you can imagine in the 1970s I mean World War II had only been over a while so it's sort of like this like weird um post fascist country that is um I mean you know in some kind of tumult in light of that I mean like there is there there are some strong left forces like the Communist Party, Party of Italy is like a pretty significant force in um Italian politics but then there's also this like um other I think like more radical impulse um maybe radical is the wrong word maybe like more like left communist impulse i think within it, within italy um that is um kind of fractured into a lot of different different like ways um so like i said there's the communist party of italy but then there's all these like other sort of like factions of the italian left um one of them uh which antonio negri was actually a part of uh, is called autonomia Operaia. that's like workers autonomy um And it is like a political movement that is um, recognizing that the trade union movement has done kind of like a bad job in Italy for speaking for all workers. Like, you know, they um, the Communist Party has some kind of like foothold in 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 the union movement and the labor movement in Italy. But they're not like, um, you know, and that's great for people who are trade unionists, right? Like bricklayers and carpenters and so on. Right. But they aren't necessarily speaking up for people who have, like, more precarious jobs. Um, and that kind of causes a, a bit of a rift. And it's not always a rift. It sometimes is, sometimes not. It's like, you know, it's complicated. <laughs> but um, things in Italy kind of take this interesting turn, though, when that movement of, like, workers' autonomy kind of fractures into all of these other sort of splintery cells and stuff. It's more complicated than I'm saying here, too. <laughs> but, the, but the other piece of it is that, like, Some of them, um, Autonomia Operaia, the the Italian like the workers' autonomy thing, um, it's it's like a peaceful movement. Like they're communists, but they're like doing lots of interesting like art stuff, and it it focuses specifically on like um, uh, on like guerrilla like radio stations, Um, and that's interesting. But like it's like lots of like interesting creative like projects that they're doing to kind of like. Provoke people sort of like in the spirit of like the situationists in France, like which we've talked about on the show before. Um, but the, the the armed cells <laughs> of of like wild left wing communism um, become kind of like uh, well, I mean, they just get they get wild. So there's a, a group called the Red Brigades and um, they are like an armed group in particular. Um, I mean, some people might call them terrorists and the, some people. I mean might be right <laughs> they they were um but anyways uh the this all intersects with Antonio Negri, the one of the authors of the book that we read, uh because uh the red brigades they kidnapped a guy named Aldo Moro, who is the like the leader of the Christian Democrat party in Italy um and they killed him and um Negri got some of the blame for that. Um, they um in Italy they like accused him of all kinds of different things. At the end of the day, they accused him of being a terrorist and it stuck. Um, and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. And <laughs> um he did what any good left philosopher would do and flee the country. So he <laughs> fled to um to Paris, where that's where you know he started, he taught alongside Derrida and Deleuze and all these kinds of guys. Um, But interestingly enough, he ended up going back to Italy uh, out of a plea bargain to serve out uh, a portion of his um, of his sentence. That was in 1997. And then he was released from prison in 2004. Um, And then still to this day, he can't really travel very much because he is a convicted terrorist and philosopher. So um, I mean, it's cool, but also kind of tragic because he's a really brilliant guy.
1: And uh, anyways, sucks. So, in fact, uh, he uh, he was banned from coming to Canada in 2017. There was some professors in Western Canada who were trying to bring him here. And uh, the Stephen Harper government, who's like he's like the Canadian George W. Bush, he passed like an anti-terror law, basically. And then the Trudeau government didn't repeal it. So uh, even though Trudeau was the prime minister in 2017, Negri couldn't come because he was a a terrorist. (laughs) There you go.
0: Um, so that's a long and kind of meandering story with I think a lot of important details left out. Um, but that's just gonna have to do it for right now because we have to talk about this book. <laughs> but that's it, but it's important context, right? That's all that's all happening in the background of this book. Um so this book, Communists Like Us, it's written in 1985. So it's not like that far removed from any of this, right? Um uh Negri is with Guattari and they're in France, um, because that's where he has to be, uh, because he is escaping prison. Um, And then they wrote this book. Um, The book itself is really fascinating because it is, I mean, like we said at the top, kind of this interesting book about um, what does a liberation movement have to look like um, at this point? You know, can you rely on the models of anarchism? Can you rely on the models of Leninism? And um, they say, no, you can't do either of those things. Um, They think that they're sort of like old hat. They're just uh, things that we need to get past. And uh, I don't know, I have have criticisms, I think, of both of those things. But at the same time, I think they have some interesting ideas kind of at the core. But at the very top of their book, what they want to do is uh, defend the idea of communism, despite um, not kind of picking up the Leninist project or um, holding democratic centralism at like an arm's length. So I'm going to read a bit here and we can kind of talk about what some of this means and maybe like the trend of people doing this and like post-Marxist types of philosophy. So Guattari and Negri write this. The project, to rescue communism from its own disrepute. Once invoked as the liberation of work through mankind's collective creation, communism has instead stifled humanity. We who see communism as the liberation of both collective and individual possibilities must reverse what regimentation of thought and desire which terminates the individual. Bankrupt, the collectivist regimes have failed to realize socialist or communist ideals. Capitalism, too, has played fast and loose with the promises of liberty, equality, progress, and enlightenment. Forget capitalism and socialism. Instead, we have in place one vast machine extending over the planet, an enslavement of all mankind. Okay, some harsh words off the bat here, but um, <laughs> <laughs> keep in mind, this is 1985. And when people would say socialism, they mean a really particular thing. Um, I mean, more or less a particular thing. And uh, this is something that Guattari and Negri both kind of have a distaste for because they, um, I don't know, they they're, by their observations, they're not seeing the sort of transformative project that they think communism has to be. So um, instead of, uh, you know, saying, well, um, socialism is like here, it's arrived, whatever, they're kind of giving some criticism to her, towards like real existing socialist projects in the world. Um, towards some kind of other horizon. And um, I don't think they're entirely wrong in doing so, but, um, you know, they're writing in sort of this, like, manifesto-y kind of style, too. So there's, like, something kind of bombastic about it that is uh, fun. (laughs) But but also, like, leaving some things out.
1: Yeah, and just to contextualize it a bit further, too, in terms of uh, Italy stuff, like, the Communist Party of Italy, so the, you know, the sort of Leninist Party... um, That would have been popular in Italy at the time. It, too, had been drifting away from the Soviet Union in the 80s. Well, since like the 70s, really. And that is maybe an important backdrop as well. So the Communist Party at a certain point, especially after the um, Czechoslovakia situation uh, where the Soviet Union... um, depending on the verb you choose, (laughs) went into Czechoslovakia, uh, invaded it, or however you want to put it. And the Communist Party of Italy disagreed with that in a very public way. And it was like the biggest um, communist party in like a Western capitalist country at the time. So it was significant that they did that. And eventually the party developed what they called Eurocommunism, which was a different kind of approach. Um, It was still in some ways a Leninist thing, but not in the way that it was and uh, kind of became a bit more of an establishment party, I think, for better and for worse um, in Italy. And so what you see, too, with this particular intervention of talking about the socialist and communist ideals and the capitalist kind of situation, all creating this uh, this bad environment in the world. Um, I think they're also kind of trying to find a path forward for the left in Italy too, right? Like everybody in Italy is kind of like, okay, we don't want to do what the Soviet Union's doing, except like there are a handful of communists that do <laughs> want to do that. But uh, the establishment communist party doesn't want to do that. The uh, autonomia movement doesn't want to do that, and so they're trying to also distinguish themselves, I think, a little bit from uh, from other kind of left discourses as well.
0: Yeah, that's pretty helpful too. So I mean, given all that, you could see kind of where they're coming from. I think that makes sense, right? It's uh, not—it's not the big transformative and liberative thing that it's supposed to be. It feels different. Um, Man, when I said that, real evangelical vibes, you know. Just got to come back to the heart (laughs) of worship. Here uh, is—is the the vibes I'm getting from this book. (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, they go on to say this. This is kind of like the turning point, right? Uh, Socialism and capitalism—they've only gotten us so far, and uh, it's not great they say. Um, so uh, what should you do? So now everything must be reinvented, the purpose of work as well as the modalities of social life, rights as well as freedoms. We will once again begin to define communism as the collective struggle for the liberation of work. That is at once to end the current situation. Um, so they start to get into like what they actually mean by communism here in a minute. And it's actually not like, it's not not Marxist. I think it's actually pretty Marxist, but in like like you're saying a minute ago, Dean, in this kind of like uh, doing something different with like Marx than maybe, um, you know, a typical like Marxist-Leninist organization might or something like that. Um, so yeah, they, they go on to kind of stress this point, right? We define communism as the assortment of social practices leading to the transformation of consciousness and reality on every level, political and social, historical and everyday, conscious and unconscious. So this is important. I think um, this is an important thing for their work, but also I think for like um, this particular like milieu of uh, postmodern post Marxist kinds of political philosophy that like the, the state is a problem um, and be, for, for like two reasons, the state is a problem because like um, it exists and it's like a repressive sort of like apparatus that keeps you in line. Right. And um, you know the Marxist Leninist would say, well, then you should just then you can seize the state apparatus and you can use it to you know liberate labor or whatever <laughs> you know do do what you're gonna do with it to do socialism. Um, but but the uh, the addition that I think that people like Guattari and Negri and then other postmodern philosophers make is that like um, it's you could do that you could just seize the state, but the problem is that the state is not just a thing that's like you know exists in the world. But it's a thing that kind of is like um, traced on your brain um it's a thing that is like you know embodied in your life that like you know even if you were to abolish the state you would still maybe act like there was the state or you would um you would you know um you would make a new workers government that actually just did the same thing the state apparatus already does (laughs) so it's like um so so what they're looking for is this thing that kind of um helps us figure this out right that uh, it's not enough just to do politics, but you also have to kind of like reform your own brain, in, like the, only, your, the way that you live in the world, um, before you can kind of like get politics done in a way that is actually liberative.
1: Yeah, that idea in postmodernism of trying to figure out the structures that condition how we think and, and act, I think is actually really helpful. Uh, A lot of Marxists like to rag on postmodernism in general. And I think Negri and Guattari are kind of weird postmoderns. They're not maybe as directly uh, tied to some of the complaints that Marxists tend to have as somebody like Derrida or Foucault might be. But they do have like a good kind of intuition or impulse to say there are all kinds of ways that the structures of domination in our world kind of seep into our being. Marxists sometimes complain that postmodernists get distracted like they... Trade class analysis for other kinds of analysis that they think is like more critical. And the Marxists are like, well, how critical is it really if it doesn't get anybody to go on strike? And like, I'm sympathetic to that in a certain respect. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's true what Marx says philosophers like to interpret the world, but the point is to change it. Uh, but at the same time, the postmodernists, I think, have a really important caution for Marxists, which is to say, There are lots of ways that we reproduce modes of being that are really unhealthy and really bad and really dominating and oppressive for us that are beyond just like I go to work and my boss treats me bad or something like that. Um, Even our language itself kind of directs us sometimes Mm -hmm. in some negative directions and we need to be able to expose that. So whether it's the logic of the state or, you know, the way that police officers make you think about yourself in a society or whatever it might be. Um, it's important that postmodernists kind of raise that question. And uh, I don't know, I think the thing about left communism that is always so interesting to me is it is always extremely nervous about those structures. And I think that kind of nervousness is something I always feel ambivalent about. Like, on the one hand, I think you absolutely need that warning, right? Like, postmodernism should give that warning to Marxist thinkers and actors and so on. Um, at the same time, I think sometimes it's kind of like <laughs> the left communism has this one hammer and everything does look like a nail. And all of a sudden, every single thing is the state and the state is definitely evil <laughs> and there's nothing good about it. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always of two minds <laughs> about, about it. But I think it's important to like let the critique enter in at least and kind of give it its day and figure out what you can learn from it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense um <laughs> everything uh does look like a state that's true um <laughs> if you read Foucault everything's a prison um <laughs> barely even a joke um the thing that I think is really attractive about it to me and maybe what really made me interested in it in the first place though is the emphasis on transformation um rather than sort of like a static thing um Guattari and Negri's I mean Guattari and Negri are always talking about transformation right that like communism has to be this thing that is about, like, um, uh, it, there's a place in the text where they say it's it's about creating conditions for human renewal, right? For making a, a, a society where people can live and be, <laughs> like, good <laughs> and, and live good lives. And, I mean, there's something, like, I think that's really um, uh, resonant, I think, with, like, liberation theology or something, too, right? Mm-hmm. That's the, Those are common talking points that... Uh, Socialism isn't just for socialism's sake. It's for the sake of creating like a new type of people who can, you know, really live their lives rather than just being sort of like uh subservient to a profit making scheme or something. Um, okay. So the other the other place where this starts um deviating from, I don't know, like more Marxist-Leninist ideas or something, is um they are really like um they're resistant to the idea of like an, an overarching ideology kind of guiding the way. And I think that is a very interesting thing, because if you say communism to somebody, I mean, they would think of that as a particular ideology, but uh, they don't think so. So Guattari and Negri say this. Make no mistake about it. Communism is not a blind reductionist collectivism dependent on repression. It's the singular expression for the combined productivity of individuals and groups emphatically not reducible to each other. If it is not a continuous reaffirmation of singularity, then it's nothing, and so it is not paradoxical to define communism as the process of singularization. Communism cannot be reduced in any way whatsoever to an ideological belief system, a simple legal contract, or even to an abstract egalitarianism. It's a part of a continuous process which runs throughout history, entailing a questioning of the collective goals of work itself. Um, I think this is pretty cool because this is, I think, actually in line with Marx's definition of communism in uh, the German ideology about this, like, um, you know, it's the thing that abolishes the present state of things. Um, and saying that it's it's about, uh, it's not just about the sort of collectivism, but it's about the, the individual within the collectivism, the singularization of a person, right? The, um, the realization of a person within the collective uh, in, in, in a way that's not ideological is, uh, I think, a I mean, a pretty lofty goal, uh, (laughs) a a hard needle to thread. But it is really interesting, right? That, like, it's recognizing that, um, I mean, like Marx did too, that, like, uh, a person is you know, has a species being, you, you're part of a whole, but you're also a person in that whole. And uh, it's, it's important to kind of figure out both ends of the spectrum. Yeah,
1: I think that is a helpful emphasis, too, because everybody has heard the kind of line about communism as the big mass that swallows up all individuals. And you can't you can't have fun and you can't do anything that you want to do. You just got to do whatever they tell you to do. You know, say new boss, same as the old boss, I guess, is kind of the story that capitalists like to tell that communism wouldn't really. Um, you know, liberate you or whatever. So at least under capitalism, we have the ability to, I don't know, like whatever movies we want to like and, you know, <laughs> create our own individual identities or or whatever. And I think it's good to emphasize that there is something in communism that is actually trying to create a space for people to actually discover who they are in a meaningful way. Uh, and to do that with other people, that there's a bit of a, a dialectical relationship between The collective and the singular and i i wonder if uh stylizing communism as the process of singularization i'm not sure if i buy it or not (laughs) but i think it is helpful to see at least that like living in a kind of alternative uh society that's premised on a different mode of production a different relationship to work and so on Um, That is the kind of thing that actually liberates us to have the time that we need and the kind of space that we need, the mental space, to figure out what kind of people we want to be at all, what kind of individuals we'd want to be at all. And that's something that you see in Marx. uh, uh, There's a great line, I think also in the German ideology or somewhere, I'm going to butcher it, but Marx uh, has this classic line where he says, Um, In a communist society, you can go fishing uh, in the morning, you can go hunting in the evening, and you can write, you know, in between without ever being a fisherman, a hunter or writer. That's kind of the the idea that you'd be free to just explore the world as it comes to you without fully identifying with this or that. And I think it's good to say that there's something about seeking that that would really that kind of, you know, social mode of being that would really unlock our own potentials in a way that's different from the way that capitalism claims that it's, you know, based on uh, giving us our freedoms, our liberties and so on. And there's something kind of interesting, at least about framing communism that way, like what's in it for me kind of situation. I think, like I said, there's a part of me that resists that. But also it's like it's a pretty attractive point to make as well. Yeah. I mean,
0: um, whether or not communism is really the process of singularization, like you said, maybe I don't know if I buy that. Yes. Yes. Sometimes maybe no. Some of some of the times. But, you know, it, it is the idea, at least, that, like, if work was liberated in the way that they're talking about here, where you don't have to, you know, you're not worried about your wages or whatever, or your salary, um, then, you know, that might be true, right? You could definitely figure out some things about yourself that you wouldn't otherwise, right? When, you, when you're usually too busy working, maybe you find a new <laughs> hobby or, I don't know, you become a person who doesn't like to fish in the morning or whatever. I don't know. Who can say, but, um, I think that, uh, there's something to it at least, uh, that's interesting and worth, uh, parsing out for yourselves, (laughs) perhaps. Um, okay. So that's like the first part of the book. Communists like us, they're trying to talk about what kind of communists they are. And, um, from my perspective, not bad ones, kind of interesting ones. Um, helpful interlocutors, I guess. Um, so then the, the rest of the book kind of it, it tells it does it does a few different things at once. It's kind of telling this history, this like story of um of uh May 1968, of the autonomia movement, all these kinds of things, right? It's it's telling you a lot of things all at once and um what's going on. Uh but then there's a pivot kind of later on in the book, in chapter five, called the New Alliance, the name of the chapter. And it's like, OK, so um, if we want to do this new thing and, and so far we haven't done it, <laughs> you know, but maybe picking on picking up some of the threads that um, some of these groups have you know, made in the meantime, how do we do it? What does it look like? How do we get to these like sort of new forms of like uh, uh, communist organizing uh, that we haven't gotten to yet? So they kind of come up with some different ideas about that. Um, like I said, they're not interested in Lenin. They're not interested in anarchism, neither of them, which is actually really interesting, an interesting line to walk, right? They're they're communists, but they're not statists. They're um, very, they're people who both are really actually invested in Marx, but they're not people who are very interested in having like a strong state. So, um, but, but also not anarchists at the same time, <laughs> wild. <laughs> um, tell all of your friends on Twitter this and see how mad <laughs> they get at you. I don't know. Um, so, they're after these kind of like these new forms of organizing. Uh, so, this is what they say the task of organizing new proletarian forms must be concerned with the plurality of relations within a multiplicity of singularities. A plurality focused on collective functions and objectives that escape bureaucratic control and overcoding, in the sense that the plurality develops towards optimizing the processes involved in singularities. So, how do you organize um, proletarian forms? How do you organize workers? How do you organize people on the margins? Um, How do you organize, you know, everyone from trade unionists to fast food workers, to gig workers, to uh, people who are homeless, all of these people, right? How do you do it uh, in a way that recognizes their specific interests and their specific political aspirations and takes it seriously, uh, but also recognizes the way that these, um, These, you know, movements are kind of bound up with one another inexorably because of capitalism, but not overburdening everybody with one ideological line. So that's the that's the goal here, right, is to let everyone kind of do their own thing and kind of push at their particular area of capitalism um, while pushing and creating like actual problems for capitalism, but not like managing everybody in some kind of bureaucratic party sense. Does
1: that make sense, Dean? <laughs> yeah, that anything- I think so. And maybe one way of wrapping our heads around this, too, is to go back to that point about postmodernism where it's trying to uncover all these other structures that uh, are dominating us in our world, and also trying to u- uncover different experiences that aren't, aren't really accounted for uh, in the kind of picture that modernity developed about the ideal rational man and that sort of thing. So what they're proposing, I think, is a recognition that um, capitalism, it's about workers and bosses for sure, but also it's about the way that our gender relations are structured. It's the way that uh, race relations are structured, right? It's—it um, Capitalism determines how we engage with media and TV and newspapers and all the rest of it. And so when we think about attacking capitalism, yeah, we should go on strike, but also um, when you maybe create a you know a, a gap in the armor around uh, the gender conditions required to make capitalism reproduce itself in a specific way, then maybe that too is an attack on the capitalist system. So there's a recognition that capitalism is more than just workers and bosses. There's this um, there are other ideological and material kind of components to it that help keep that relationship of production going, and so. Yeah, you can kind of let everybody attack it in their own way. And uh, maybe you could sort of bring it all down, um, you know, from a variety of of points.
0: Yeah, that's right. So this is um, this idea here that like we're getting from the text is an idea that comes up in Guattari a lot in his work, um, not just in this book, but kind of elsewhere. So for Guattari, he's talking here about. Um, well, OK, there's the molar and the molecular. I kind of drew this out a little bit last week when we talked about Qatari. But the molar is the big, right? It's the collection of of singularities um, in one kind of like space. Um and the molecular, the molecular, on the other hand, is like, you know, the each each individual sort of like point of view or each individual singularity, right? Um, so these two ideas are are really important because um where where you end up is with these ideas of molecular revolutions that you know you want you can't have this this big 19 1917 sort of like russian revolution moment is sort of like untenable with all of the with, with like the social composition of society i guess is kind of the idea so um and also maybe undesirable as well having one big revolutionary mo- moment um where uh you'd have to um, like he said a minute ago, overcode people to kind of like fall in line along these like bureaucratic positions or something. Um, so, in light of all of that, he thinks that there's like this particular molecular point of view of organizing um, where people can kind of rely on one another to do their own thing while also kind of coordinating in an interesting way, um, but without ideological unification. So, that's the important piece. Um, So here's another piece from Guattari and Negri. From a molecular point of view, each attempt at ideological unification is an absurd and indeed reactionary operation. Desire on a social terrain refuses to allow itself to be confined to zones of consensus in the areas of ideological legitimation. Why ask a feminist movement to come to a doctrinal or programmatic accord with the ecological movement groups, or with a communitarian experiment by people of color, or with a workers' movement, uh, etc.? ideology shatters and it only unifies the level of appearance so i think there's something interesting happening here um and also something that i think is wrong (laughs) um so on the one hand i think there's something there's like some truth to it right like there are all kinds of different movements and organizations and um, people who are poking at capitalism from different angles and like you don't necessarily need them all to agree on like um you know how the party functions or on like democratic centralism or something right you don't you don't have to do that um to me the difficulty here is like well why would you ask a feminist someone in a feminist movement to come to a doctrinal or programmatic accord with somebody in the ecological movement and to me that seems like such a silly question because like those two movements are connected mm-hmm. <laughs> or like why would you why would you ask a communitarian um experiment with people of color to talk to the workers movement because like those two <laughs> things are connected right um, but I think what Gu- Guattari is saying is that like you don't need any one of these things or any one of these perspectives to like subsume the others. Um, they can kind of stand on their own while um, while working in a in, in a molecular way um, alongside these other movements mm-hmm. in particular.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's also interesting to think through how Negri and Guattari work that out in a political way. So you got to get everybody on board, kind of with their own their own concerns, and I think that. Is probably true. I mean, unavoidable. Uh, and to be fair, also, I think they run this over maybe with the manifesto rhetoric. Uh, but this was a strategy of Leninist organizing in the twenties, thirties, and forties. Um, you know, organized differently for sure. the The idea was to certainly get people um, kind of on board with a, a popular front that would be led by the Communist Party and a Leninist vision. That is true. But I think, too, you know, in the history of Leninist organizing, there's this recognition that you got to get people there on their own terms. Anyway, neither here nor there. But <laughs> I think it's good that they're affirming that people should find their own way in, be welcomed in on their own terms. And just to kind of think through politically, like they also uh, go on to say there are ways that we could think about things like even legal rights or uh, uh, freedoms and things like that that we thought of in a, a liberal state. Um, In a different way, if we kind of understood these different uh, social movement considerations that everybody should be sort of invited to the table to reconsider that kind of stuff. And although I think it would be tempting to see this all as totally disconnected from reality, like this is just political philosophers opining about something that doesn't really matter. um, In fact, uh, it was well, Negri in particular is pretty influential on uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. And uh, Chavez had read Negri um, while he was in prison and uh, had cited Negri a handful of times as as president. And I think even in the Bolivarian Revolution, you see something like this, right? The Venezuelan state is complicated. It's not just really like one ideological line. Uh, It's the collection of all kinds of different communes that are associated based on other relationships. Like in some cases, it's like a neighborhood. In other cases, it's like a group of motorcyclists, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like um, like you can become a commune related to the state of Venezuela in all these different ways. And, uh, you know, not to say that this specific formation in this book is kind of the blueprint for that. But there's an intuition there that leads to uh, 21st century socialism. And again, for better and for worse, like there are some deficits to that, too. Right. Venezuela has struggled to figure out uh, a kind of popular unifying movement um, after the death of someone like Chavez. But I think it's important to sort of see that these ideas do play out on the ground. It's not just like, I don't know, academic, you know, glass bead games of people just writing books for the sake of writing books. Like there's some real political weight behind that, too
0: yeah that's true I mean, in you know if, if there are other other parallels too I think we can draw too earlier, you said the ways the empire is influential mm-hmm. to occupy, but I think there's other ways that some of these left communist ideas come out in um different people's movements, I mean, like the zapatistas for sure, right there's a lot of this mm-hmm. kind of thing happening there too um connections <laughs> you made that's all I'm trying to say so the idea here though is that uh you know you organize people into some kind of, like, coalition into these, like, uh, these molecular groups, right? Um, And then what you do is you find the ways that those groups in particular are capable of, like, um, putting up considerable roadblocks to capitalism. So uh, they write that uh, what is essential is that each movement shows itself to be capable of unleashing irreversible molecular revolutions and linking itself either limited or unlimited molar struggles uh to the political terrain um so so the idea here is sorry there's a lot more words i can read (laughs) but i'm not anyways but the idea here is that like you have to find the ways that all of these molecular kind of like pieces can actually you know throw capitalism into question um you know and like you're saying a minute ago dean like the workers movement i mean it makes sense right go on strike (laughs) but also um but but also you know there's actually a really strong history of of the ways that like feminist movements have kind of figured this out too um in Italy, uh we've talked about Silvia Federici on this podcast before and the wages for housework movement and the ways that um women uh definitely kind of like uh explicated the the role that like domestic labor plays in uh capitalism. And in the United States, people have done that too, right? Like um Joni Tillman from the National Welfare Rights Organization did something very similar. Um, that that women's work is is work. Domestic labor is labor. And I think that these are interesting examples of the ways that like molecular revolution actually does make sense um, and, and like that there's a real power to it. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, the idea, I think that, um, well, the issue then is like connecting them all up together because that is, I think, more difficult. But, but just the same, I think there's, there's something to what Guattari and Negri are saying here, right? There's real examples of it in the world. Um, Beyond just
1: just (laughs) yeah, I think that's maybe where uh, I have an open question um, about all of this and and for left communism in general, you know, like uh, it's true ideological ways of unifying people or having one big common project and so on can become oppressive and they can recreate the state in your brain that you don't want. And uh, they can stifle other um, sort of avenues of freedom that we need. And all that's true. Lots of examples that would be easy to find. At the same time, though, I often think of like a country like Cuba, for example, which still has a Leninist party at the helm and has for a long time. uh, That party is generally flexible, not always in a rapid way. It takes some time for sure. But you see that party uh, evolving from the revolution in the late 50s uh, all the way till today on issues related to religion, to women's rights, to the arts, to most recently LGBT plus rights. Um, It's a a kind of uh, experiment in Cuba to even pull in these other molecular struggles, you could say, the struggle for LGBT uh, plus recognition and, and affirmation and liberation. Um, that really gets kind of rolled into the, the broader vision of a liberated Cuba, a free Cuba, and a Cuba that is still struggling for liberation from capitalism, and it's one that's guided by a democratic centralist party. And I think, like, like I said, there are so many examples of where that goes wrong and doesn't kind of work out, and including in Cuba, right? It's not a, a simple kind of story either or, or a completely utopic place. But uh, that question of how to unify, um, I, I sometimes wonder, like, you know, how do the molecular revolutions get unified into a big molar issue? This is the constant struggle for um, left communism in general. Uh, there's lots of examples of like really exciting molecular revolutions popping off and even linking together in a big way, like Occupy maybe being the most obvious uh, but at the end of the day, there's no real um, organizing apparatus to kind of collect all those energies and then put them toward a, a bigger sort of project, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, all that to say, I think it's still a, an important live debate on the left about what we're supposed to do about party organizations or other kinds of apparatuses that can collect those energies and and direct them. But uh, But I think it's true still nevertheless what they're saying that there Are these you know kind of smaller struggles that can each uh bring something to the table when it comes to attacking capitalism in a maybe like a bit of a guerrilla war <laughs> on lots of different fronts?
0: Yeah, well, you got to keep in mind this is written in 1985 and uh, they don't have what we have now the blockchain, <laughs>
1: that's right,
0: NFTs, <laughs>
1: that's good, 3.0. We've got
0: it, we've got it all, we got ways to get this done now, uh, um, yeah. No, maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. Okay. so um, interestingly enough, uh, they do have we, we we did find the one mention of religion in the entire book. And I thought it is probably worth kind of pointing out here before we kind of wrap the conversation up. Uh, so they write that it frequently happens as much in Arab, Slavic, Latin, America, Latin American as in Anglo-Saxon countries that the experimentation with new forms of organization develops from within religious imaginaries. Undoubtedly, one must distinguish between religious motivations which are attached to an act of liberation and those which are re-territorialized around theological alienation. So uh that conversation between Lula and Guitari <laughs> years ago now really stuck with them I guess uh for sure Qatari is recognizing that the uh liberation theology does exist and you have to think about it. <laughs> and that's something. But I mean an interesting uh an interesting inclusion though right as we're talking about like the things that make like that make these molecular organizations stick together um you know uh among those new forms you have to consider the ways that uh Liberation theology in different religious traditions maybe uh, have been some of that glue that that held these uh, these ideas together at least in some places.
1: Yeah, not always, but you know, an idea. Well, it's also a good way to think of the church as one of those um, one of those molecular sites or kind of uh, places where just like with the feminist group or the ecological group or whatever it might be, you've got to sort of find the point of contact, find the things that bring uh, those folks in. And in Latin America, for instance. Where you've got all these base communities hanging out, uh, those are communities that are motivated to spend time together for a really particular reason that they feel that that is an active part of their faith, and it's out of those communities that all kinds of other things grew. You know, trade unions, peasant federations, uh, literacy campaigns, all these things that kind of spring out of that first struggle. So. Maybe that's one way of uh, thinking about it. I don't know. It'd be interesting to find out, did Guattari ever have any other thoughts about base communities of liberation theology? It feels like such an interesting way of uh, linking some of these things together. But it, you could probably make a case. Um, I think it's also interesting that other piece about distinguishing between religious motivations and uh, re-territorializing uh, religion. Um, the thing that comes to mind for me is the difference between Thomas Munzer and Martin Luther, Right where Thomas Munzer is like a German priest, part of the Radical Reformation, who is theologically motivated or motivated by his religious vision of a world without princes. (laughs) A world uh, where the peasants are able to share things together just like the early Christians did. Um, And at the same time, parallel to Munzer is Luther, who is uh, maybe trying to lead some kind of liberation uh, from an oppressive structure, but ends up siding with the princes against the peasants and against Munzer and re-territorializes a new regime of power in the language of theology. So uh, it's kind of a neat uh, distinction that you can view, I guess, in all kinds of other instances (laughs) throughout uh, Christianity's history. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's circle back around to that in one second. But the
0: the conclusion of the chapter is actually really interesting, and I'm interested in it a lot. (laughs) I've said it twice. It's interesting and I'm interested in it. Um, OK, so, you know, we're looking for these new forms of um, revolutionary organizations. We're trying to find the molecular revolutions and like, where do we look for them at um, at church, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Guattari and Negri say that uh, th- they say this where to find them. This is where you find them. New domains of struggle become possible everywhere, but the privileged point, the hot point in the production of new machines of revolutionary struggle, resides within the zones of marginalized subjectivity. And there as well, it goes without saying, not in and of themselves, but because they are inscribed in the meaning of creative production processes uh, considered in their evolutionary position that is not arbitrarily isolated within the capitalist economic sphere. The social imaginary can recompose itself only through radical change. In this regard, one should take into account that marginal phenomena are are part of the context which does not define them as being at the margin, but which, on the contrary, confers them a central place in the capitalist strategy. The marginal subjectivities, inasmuch as they are the product of the best analyzers of command tendencies, are also those which resist it the best. Okay. There's a lot of jargon in this as I'm reading it. I'm realizing, but what they're saying is really interesting. Uh, do you want to know where these like uh, where the new points of molecular revolution might be? Like where are you going to find these types of struggle? You have to look to the margins, because the margins actually have some type of political power, even though they are the margins, right? Like people who are uh, low wage workers who you know who don't have enough money to even open a bank account or something, or people who are unhoused, um, people who are undocumented, all of these kinds of people um, they have a marginalized subjectivity and they're marginalized by by capitalism, right by the like the sort of neoliberal capitalist order. But the thing that's really interesting is that even though they are marginalized, right, they're the leftover they're the, they're the things that the society doesn't really want but but at the same time like they are actually really important because capitalism has marginalized them they've pushed them off to the edge and they it it needs them to kind of function right um uh vegetables and fruit don't get picked without undocumented workers in the United States um big corporations don't get uh don't get billions of dollars in profits with, without um Without uh, low wage workers and so on. So it's just like uh, the people on the margins uh, have have some type of power. There's there's a there's an interesting like kind of point there, uh, like a jumping off point to kind of figure out like where and how you push back, Um, because, you know, capitalism needs those marginalized people to, to function. That's just the way that it works.
1: Yeah, or even uh, on the margins of capitalism, too, there are new opportunities to discover some kind of agency that has been stifled, uh, mm-hmm. a kind of identity that might become more significant. Like this was the strategy of, you know, the Black Panthers, at the Young Lords, these kinds of movements that, uh, contrary to Marx, who sort of said you shouldn't really waste your time organizing the what he called the proletariat, the people who are not regular workers, but are kind of on the margins of, uh, of work or in and out of prison or, uh, you know, caught up in, I don't know, activities that aren't really integrated into unionizable labor. Um, what uh, these other kind of social movements and, and political movements and parties uh, said was, on the contrary, that's actually where you're going to find a lot of people who uh, are ready to to get free? You know, people who want to get rid of their chains and also have nothing else to lose, and uh, might be willing to to show up, right, to to become part of a, a regiment or or disciplined uh, movement for for justice and liberation. So I think it's cool too that they are recognizing there's all kinds of opportunity at the margin, which is also something that Marxism as a tradition doesn't always kind of have room for. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, let's sort of go back around then to the, the question about the religion part, because I think that's really interesting. Um, so, Dean, you and I, in one way or the other, are interested in organizing sort of religious communities or faith communities. And um, I don't know, to me, at least, uh, I, I think that they're right. Like, that is a great place to start thinking about, like, how to be, I mean, imaginative about making these connections. Um, because, I mean, I mean, at least um, at, at its best. Christianity has some kind of interest in the margins as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is interesting that if nothing else, it does provide some type of like glue to kind of stick these things together. Um, I don't know. I think about the, I've been talking about the young Lords a few times in this conversation, but the young Lords and the church offensive, um, I mean, the black Panthers meeting in churches as well. There's this uh, sense in which even just like the space of a church can be really important um, in a community, even if you don't go there, right. Just having it, be there as a place to like meet or a space to use. That's not like a library or mm-hmm. uh, something, you know, it's, it's a, it could be a powerful thing. I, I guess also um, maybe just to, to put it out there too, it could also be an alienating thing. So there's that, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's at least like a, like a point of possibility, I guess.
1: I think that's right. And it's also, uh, I guess, a a good challenge to Christianity to say how much is it invested in the margins. And I think it is true that the closer it gets to the margins, the closer also the church becomes more revolutionary itself. Like uh, I always think of the the big example is um, the bishop in Chiapas, Mexico, uh, Samuel Ruiz. Uh, He was a conservative when he was appointed to be the bishop and he famously got on a donkey and decided he was going to visit every single community in his diocese. And Chiapas is a pretty hard place to get around in. The terrain is not very friendly, and most people are poor. And he was really struck by the poverty that he saw. He went through Vatican II, And uh, by the time the Zapatistas had an uprising, he had really become a a progressive figure for social justice in the community. So much so that when the Zapatistas needed to negotiate with the Mexican government, the only person that they would trust to do that was Bishop Ruiz. And I think that's uh, such a classic story. You can see it repeated in lots of other places. You know, Oscar Romero, uh, another classic person who was like a conservative appointed as a conservative bishop and then was radicalized by his proximity to people on the margins there's a sense where if you get close enough to the margins and you're a person of faith in an authentic way it's going to commit you to the struggle of those people and i think that is maybe a good a good challenge for our own church communities like i don't know if uh, if your church congregation doesn't seem like it's like ready to to get down with justice. Maybe that's because it's also afraid of, you know, meeting those people who are on the margins of, uh, of the community itself.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Well, <laughs> I feel like we've talked for quite a bit. We've talked about a lot of extremely niche philosophical concepts, but we did get somewhere in the end. Um, <laughs> there's some things in here to consider as people who are like, you know, uh, church people in social spaces, Figuring out how they fit into these struggles. Um, if nothing else, maybe you could be the glue that sticks some of these people together. <laughs> and maybe you can't. Who knows? But um, here are at least here's a French and Italian philosopher who thinks maybe it'll work out, <laughs> or admit, have some potential ideas around it. That's for sure. Yeah.
1: Turn your Bible study into the molecular revolution in your town. <laughs> there you go. There's something. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you donate at $2 or more, you can join this great Discord community we have. And guess what? Twitter, it's going down. It's a sinking ship, so you're gonna have to find somewhere else to talk to people. Why not let it be this great Discord community? Uh, our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. Keep your hoods up And you stay up late In Jackson You keep your hoods up Well you keep your hoods up And you stay up late Oh don't mind A cold night But we might mind If you leave too soon So come on now It's still early least I would have.